Welcome to the Women Want Strong Men podcast. I'm your host, Amy Stuttle. I believe it takes a strong man to appreciate a strong woman, and I'm here to bring a unique perspective to empower both sexes. I love talking with health experts, thought leaders, influencers, and people who have insightful information to share with us about our health, our society, and our pursuit for success and prosperity. On today's show, we have Dr. Matt Bradley, and he has one of the most inspirational stories of anybody I've ever met. At 10 years old, he was hit by a drunk driver and ultimately lost his right leg. He sits with us today, resilient, and as a board-certified orthopedic surgeon. He graduated from the University of Notre Dame. He completed his medical school at Indiana University School of Medicine, and he did his residency at Oregon Health and Science University, Welcome to the show, Dr. Matt Bradley. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Amy. It's uh, it has definitely been uh, an interesting life. They they say life is a is a highway. Well, my highway's had a lot of potholes in it, but uh, over the last few years, it's become a, a lot smoother and a lot more enjoyable. But uh, as you say, I was struck by a driver driving under the influence when I was ten years old, living uh, up in rural Indiana. Ultimately, it cost me my entire right leg, um, about a year of my life in and out of hospitals, multiple, multiple surgeries. But uh, as you stated uh, earlier, I did uh, persevere. Eventually, I went to the University of Notre Dame uh, on to medical school and am now uh, actively practicing orthopedic surgeon in St. Louis. So it's hard for me to get my mind around because I have a 10-year-old now, as you know, and I'm just trying to imagine a young kid in sports, very active. Out, You're out on your bike, correct? That is correct. So you're out on your bike. You get hit by a drunk driver. And you wake up in the hospital and talk to me about the moment that you find out that you're either losing your leg or you don't have your leg anymore. Did Was that a conversation that happened prior to you know, them amputating it or did you just wake up and it was gone? No, it's a, it's a great question. I, I was struck by a car and um, they tried to save the leg for the first week. I very vividly remember the uh, definitive decision and conversation. Uh, my mother and my father were in the room when the doctor came in and I couldn't understand what the conversation was. But next I know is the surgeon came over to me and said, your mother and your father want you to make a decision. I said, well, what's that? He said, well, we can, we can continue to save your leg, given the amount of nerve damage and muscle damage. Uh, it probably won't be a very useful leg. You'll probably be confined to a wheelchair, possibly you know, crutches the rest of your life. Or we can go ahead and amputate your leg uh, above the knee, near the hip. And in a couple of months, you'll, you'll have a prosthetic leg or a fake leg. And you'll be, you'll be up walking. You'll be able to, to go back to playing sports and, and live a, a fairly normal life. I just looked right back at the doctor and I said, is there really, is there really an option? Is there really a choice here? And uh, we, we moved forward with the amputation and uh, he kept his word and a couple months later uh, helped me get a, a prosthetic leg. And it was a very kind of a surreal moment in, in your life because at that point, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, and I'm sure your son is the same way, they're involved in every sport that involves a ball or a bat or a paddle. And I was very much an athlete, uh, very determined to uh, you know, pursue a life of athletics as every 10-year-old boy. And at that point, it became very clear that athletics was 
something I would be able to enjoy recreationally, but was uh, never going to be very competitive at. The uh, orthopedic surgeon that uh, ultimately did the amputation uh, taught me the game of golf. Um, and you and I have played on the golf course many times. I aspire to be as good as you someday. But, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I can get around the golf course and play golf. And uh, you're an amazing enjoy golfer. enjoy the game. <laughs> oh, why thank you. But uh, you know, it's a, it was a very life changing moment. You know, you had to give up one dream, but with it came a came a new life, uh, some new dreams. And uh, you know, I've been very fortunate that the doctor that, that not only saved my life and amputated me has uh, become a good friend, uh, a role model. And I, I speak to him almost on a weekly basis, uh, some 35 years later. So very life-changing moment, one I'll never forget, but you know, life's moved on. So the first time that you wake up in that hospital bed and see yourself without a leg, can you remember back that far? At like, wh- what Was it emotional for you? Did you think, I just can't imagine a 10-year-old wrapping their mind around that. What was your mindset at that time? Yeah, it's hard. It's, you know, as a 10-year-old, you know, everything about you is is playing and games and, you know, being active. And all of a sudden, you're in a bed, you're missing a leg. And, uh, you know, I was in the hospital for uh, for months and in and out of the hospital for follow-up surgeries. So the doctor that took care of me was not only an excellent physician, but he realized the importance of of the mind and of the psychology of medicine. And he never allowed me to feel sorry for myself. We never talked about the life where I had two legs. It was always, you know, about the future. What are we going to do? You know, what sport are we going to play? How are we going to learn to play golf? It was always about moving forward. It was always something in the future to look forward to. And this is where you're going to be. And this is the things you're going to accomplish. And we never really looked back at that life. I, you know, to today, I don't, I don't remember much of, of being a, a two-legged person. That's my whole life's been about being an amputee and only having one leg. And I credit a lot of that to the nurses and the physicians and surgeons that, uh, you know, were there at that time. They always were, were very positive about the future and never really allowed me to to become depressed or to be, you know, upset or, or to think about that life that uh, I, I used to have. It was always about moving forward. And uh, that's one thing I've kind of brought with me into my medical practice you know, I do do a lot of amputations myself. I did one just uh, a couple days ago, but it doesn't even need to be as drastic as an amputation. It can be something as simple as an ankle fracture, a wrist fracture, a knee replacement. But I think it's very important to always try and look forward to the future. A lot of times we get stuck focusing on the past and events we can't really change, where the future is really the only thing we can change. And I try to, I try to give the same kind of uh, help that my surgeon gave to me to, to my patients moving forward. And uh, it's just kind of uh, kind of one of those things that uh, stuck with me throughout the rest of my life. Well, yeah, you could have easily played the victim card and lived your whole life on disability and never went out and made anything of yourself. So that's why I find the mindset so impressive because – You became an orthopedic surgeon. You are a phenomenal golfer. You went to University of Notre Dame. And we haven't mentioned yet that while you were in med school, you got liver cancer, correct? Yeah, I was diagnosed with kind of some pre-stage liver cancer and had to go through a lot of treatment and a couple of procedures to uh, eliminate that shortly after I got out of uh, my residency. So that was another bump in my life. 
Yeah, just just a little bump, minor, uh, minor speed bump there. I think, uh, you know, I think you downplay it a little bit because of your mindset and just truly how strong you are. So whenever you came home from the hospital with one leg, did you feel like your parents treated you any differently? Yeah, funny story. Just before uh, I got home, my parents had put a uh, Indian ground swimming pool in the backyard, partially for recreational, but uh, a lot for uh, rehabilitation for me having been in the hospital so long. And I was always a really good swimmer with, with two legs. And the first week after, uh, you know, being home, being out by the pool, I would sit in my wheelchair and I'd watch everybody swim. And my mom would come over and say, get in the pool, get in the pool. And I I said, how, how am I going to swim with one leg, mom? I've only got one leg. Well, after about a week or so of watching me sit in the wheelchair, not get in the pool, my mother literally picked me up and threw me in the deep end. I swam to the side of the pool and yelled at her and what are you doing, mom? And she looked at me and she goes, you just swam to the side of the pool. <laughs> Get on with it. And that was kind of how my parents you know, treated me with one leg. There was never a time where they, they felt any sorrow or pity for me. They expected me to you know, act just like any other 10-year-old, do, do my chores. Um, and I think it was a lot of that attitude and the people around me that really kept me moving forward in life. My parents were, were very supportive of, of everything I wanted to do in life, but they didn't uh, ever take time to feel sorry for me or let me feel sorry for myself. They continued to push push me, think about the future, and move forward. So, A little tough love, and I think it's good to point it out because so often do we want to coddle our kids and fix everything for our kids. And there's a lot of lessons in wanting them figure it out themselves. Yeah, that's a great point. Everybody, yeah, I have a lot of patience that you don't want to talk to me and they want to hear my story. And I tell everybody, we've, we've all got stories. We've all got stresses in our lives, deaths we've had to deal with, health conditions we've had to deal with, loss of jobs. Everybody's got some story. And I think it's when you get to that fork in the road where you can turn left or you can turn right, you know, that it, it, there's, there's a decision that has to be made. And if you continually make the decision to, to move forward in life, I think life life takes care of things. Things always seem to be better on the outside. I never would have wished myself to have lost my leg at, at age 10. But looking back at it now, I don't think I'd change it if I could. If I could go back in time and change it, I don't honestly think I could. It's it's made me who I am today. It's given me a profession that I, I love. Um, I, I really don't know if I could go back and change it if I would. Yeah, so let's talk about when you ultimately decided you wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon, because this incident did change the course of your life. Yeah. Shortly after getting out of the hospital, the orthopedic surgeon that took care of me, he kept true to his word. He promised me he would teach me a sport that I could enjoy for the rest of my life. So before I even had a leg, uh, Dr. Rutledge taught me the game of golf. He'd pick me up on, on Wednesday afternoons, take me out to the driving range, and I, I learned to play golf on, on one leg before I even had my prosthetic leg. I got to know him beyond just being a physician. He became a, a friend, kind of a, a second father to me. And I told him early on when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. He kind of shook his head and said, you know, sure, you know, whatever. And And we moved on. But it was really at that point that I knew – the impact he had had on my life. And I always hoped that in the future, I could have the same impact on just one one patient. And it wasn't until 
years later when I had gone through medical school and I'd gone through residency and uh, Dr. Rutledge ultimately retired from medicine. And I remember him telling me all of the stresses of medical school, the late nights, the, the on-call, the traumas, he said it was all worthwhile because he affected one patient the way he affected me. And that's kind of been my goal. Is I, I really hope at the end of my career, I can look back and say, I affected one patient the way Dr. Welich affected me. Um, so it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something that's been in my blood since I was 10 years old. How many orthopedic surgeons in the U.S. are amputees? Is there anyone else besides you? I know of one other uh, orthopedic surgeon that was, I believe he was out in Pennsylvania, but I, I don't know of any others. So living with a prosthetic, you're obviously very in tune with what another patient that's experienced the same thing that you've experienced is going through. What advances have you seen in prosthesis since you orig- your original prosthesis? Yeah, it's great. So 35 years ago, my first prosthesis was literally made out of wood. They took a big chunk of wood and had you know, chisels and sandpaper and they sanded it down. And as a 10 year old boy, by the time they had got my leg made for me, I'd already outgrown it. You know, I'd already grown six inches and, you know, 10 pounds. So I was outgrowing these legs as fast as they can make them. You know, nowadays they, they can make a leg very quickly. They're 3d printing sockets. They're the materials are all very lightweight. The knee that I have has, uh, computers in it and gyros, um, there's a lot of kind of robotic technology that's that's coming in, uh, but it's been you know the last thirty years of prosthetics. There's been a, a lot of advancements. Um, unfortunately, a lot of them came about from the military and the, the the wars that we've been fighting. As as physicians, we've become very good at saving lives uh, when arms and legs have been blown off in battle. And a lot of these military folks have the desire to, to return to the military. And so it's really pushed medicine and science to develop prosthetic limbs that can allow people to return to as much of a normal life as possible. Um, so uh, it's been a huge change from a wood leg to a, a computerized leg uh, in 30 years. Do you see any common trends among your patients, why they're ending up in the amputee, like a certain profession or the accidents or... What are you seeing in practice? Yeah, far and away, the most common reason for amputations is is diabetes. It's health-related. Diabetes is a, a huge pandemic in the United States. We've spent the last two years talking about COVID and Omicron and all this stuff. But the, the reality of the situation is diabetes is is, is killing you know, thousands and thousands of people and, and costing, you know, thousands and thousands of people uh, limbs, particularly legs. And so I've a good portion of my practice uh, really focuses on amputees. I do the amputations, but then I, I really follow the patients and manage them uh, medically, uh, psychologically through getting a prosthesis and returning uh, back to, uh, to life. So if they're diabetic, are they typically older, overweight? What are you seeing in in terms of those demographics? Well, that's been the the tr- trend is that it used to be uh, a little bit more of an overweight population and a little older. Unfortunately, we're seeing more and more diabetes uh, related to weight, uh, uh, you know, 
for a vast number of them, but I'm seeing younger and younger patients. I literally just amputated a 52-year-old that did not even know he had diabetes. And by the time he presented to the hospital, his, his leg was full of infection and it was unsalvageable. So I'm seeing a, a much higher degree of younger and younger people with undiagnosed diabetes uh, leading to amputations. It's so interesting that you say that because at Victory Men's Health, we see so many patients that come in with uncontrolled and undiagnosed diabetes, and they're completely clueless that this is even going on. And they happen to come to Victory because they're feeling like they're gaining weight, fatigue, so on and so forth, not coming in thinking they're going to get diagnosed with diabetes. And it's it's something that's not always an easy conversation to have with these patients. So that's so interesting that you're seeing patients that that need their legs amputated and are completely unaware that they're diabetic. Yeah, diabetes is a, a little bit like cancer in that when you actually see the effects of it, uh, it it's already pretty late. You know, it's uh, when you start give, getting the neuropathy uh, where you can't feel your hands and your feet, you start getting these wounds that don't heal. You've already had diabetes for, for years and years, and it's affected the eyes, the heart, the lungs, the liver. It affects every organ in the body, every tissue in the body. Um, that's why it's very important to not only live a healthy lifestyle, but to, to keep your routine follow-ups because diabetes can be diagnosed early and it can be treated and we can prevent uh, amputations and a lot of these um, effects that diabetes have on the body, but it, it needs to be picked up at, a, at an early you know, stage and diagnosed early. And the patients have to you know, take responsibility, control their blood sugars and you know, check their feet for wounds and everything. But unfortunately, too many times we make the diagnosis of diabetes. It's, it's late stage, very similar to, to cancers. Do you feel like amputees are seeking you out and finding you if there's a situation of where they have time to think about what surgeon they want to use? I do. It's, you know, with the advent of social media and the internet, it becomes significantly easier to, to search for doctors and to look for doctors. And I think you're completely correct. And those amputees or those patients that need an amputation, and it doesn't need to be done urgently. A lot of them do look on the internet and they look for physicians that have a lot of experience in, in that. And me being an amputee and having gone through it, I think uh, patients feel a little more at ease, a little bit more comfort when I can look look them in the eye and say, "I know where you where you're going. I've I've been there. I've done that. And this is what you're going to feel. This is what's going to happen." It, it there is a little bit of a trust, a little bit of a bond that that can be formed there, just merely because I am an amputation. But the short answer is, yeah, I do have a lot of patients that seek me out because I am an amputee. Yeah, I mean, I have to imagine mentally you're able to help so many patients, so many patients that might think it's easier to give up, but they're sitting there looking across the room at you with one leg thinking, if he's a fighter, I'm a fighter too. I mean, I, I really have to think that you make a major impact on on people's lives. Um, you experience, I know, phantom pains. And I'm curious if the surgeries or if, there's, if the surgery has advanced where you can help alleviate some of that phantom pain that people might get when they lose a limb? Yeah, it's a great question. There are techniques uh, at the time of an amputation that have been shown to help with phantom pains. Uh, I wouldn't say that it's perfect. I wouldn't say that we can prevent them or that we, we 
completely uh, eliminate all phantom pains, but there are certainly techniques and things that we have learned over the years uh, surgically to help with uh, post-operative phantom pain. There are some medications that have come out over the last 10 years that, that do help deal with the phantom pains as well. But unfortunately, it is something that we, we do see in amputees. Most of them go from pains to what we call sensations, where they have that feeling that that amputated limb is still there. It doesn't really hurt them. It's just a, a feeling or a, like a nuisance to them. But uh, there are certainly uh, things that we have uh, learned over the years in surgery that can help it out. I find phantom pains to be so intriguing. Like, it's just amazing, the human body, right? I mean, when you think about that, that the body is still feeling that sensation of the limb being there. It's wild to me. Yeah, it is crazy. You know, the brain is constantly communicating with all parts of the body. It's sending messages to your toes and your fingers at all times saying, hey, what's going on? Are you cold? Are you warm? You know, is there a lot of pressure? What's going on? And, you know, after you amputate a limb, the brain, it's still trying to communicate with that foot. And it, it there, there's a, a disconnect there where it can't communicate with it. And the body and the brain interprets that as as pain. If it can't get a signal back, it, it interprets it as pain. Um, and uh, you know, there's a lot of mental activities and things we, we do mentally to deal with phantom pains that can actually be just as successful treating the phantom pains as the medications. So the body and the brain is a very, very powerful organ. What do you do for your phantom pains when they kind of flare up from time to time? I've tried everything over the years from the medication uh, standpoint. What I've learned is exercise and being active. So I'll do a lot of stretching. I'll do some Pilates. Uh, I'll go out for a walk. I'll try to distract myself. I think the pains are worse when, when, when I'm laying in bed and I'm thinking about it. I think that's true of a lot of pains. You know, even you know my patients with with hip or, or knee pain. The more you sit down, and the more your brain's thinking about it and focused on it. I think it. It makes the pain perception worse. So when I have the phantom pains, I, I try to be more active. I, I try to do things to kind of distract my brain from from it. And it, it seems to help better than anything else I've, I've tried over the years. And the occasional IV with glutathione in it. I know you come into the clinics from time to time and get those IVs. Yeah, there are definitely times where they, particularly with the change of seasons, that they become just such that it's uh, it really is very difficult to deal with. And uh, as you said, I have come in uh, to the clinic for the uh, IV glutathione, which seems to uh, really kind of uh, take away the burn. It uh, doesn't completely eliminate them, but it makes uh, makes functioning uh, significantly better. So operating is obviously extremely demanding on in, on any individual, much less somebody with one leg did you have to modify your technique to accommodate that uh, with not standing as much as maybe the average surgeon would? C- tell us about how you operate. It's been, you know, surgeons, they, they grow and they learn uh, as their careers progress. And, and I'm no different in that. Uh, how I operate now compared to what I did 10 years ago is very different. And it's not just for the health of, of me, but also, you know, I try to become a better surgeon every day for my patients. I, I do pay a, a lot of attention to the surgeries I have, trying to have one or two big surgeries and then one or two smaller surgeries where I can sit down uh, and operate um, to, to kind of take some of that pressure off of my body, my back and my legs. 
But um, it's more of a, of a scheduling thing, just to make sure I'm not you know standing for ten hours straight. Try to find some smaller surgeries where I actually can sit down, carpal tunnels and stuff like that, uh, which helps out a lot. Now you use a robot that Striker manufactures, correct? Now and and some of your knees and hips. Yeah, just like the technology for these prosthetics has advanced, uh, technology and surgery has advanced significantly. The uh, there's a company called Striker owns a, a robot or sells a robot called the Mako. Um, it's a robot that uh, helps us do total hips and total knees. Um, which I use probably 90% of my uh, hip and knee replacements these days. Makes the uh, surgery uh, a little bit more precise. You put these uh, implants or these replacements in in better alignment. Um, I think uh, outcomes are, uh, are going to be significantly better long, long-term for these patients with the robot. It's been a, a big change over the last couple of years in, in my practice and the practice of many orthopedic surgeons throughout the United States. Um, we're seeing more and more robotic surgery being done. Do you feel like the recovery time is shorter or maybe the incisions are smaller? What are what are you seeing post-surgery with the... My incisions are definitely shorter, uh, smaller with the robot. I think the recovery time is less for many reasons, but mostly because we're putting these things in perfectly. I explain to my patients a knee or hip replacement or a shoulder replacement or an ankle replacement for that matter is... A lot like getting a new tire on a car. Your mechanic doesn't just bolt it on and send you on your way. He really takes time to align it and balance it, make sure it's going down the road straight. Similar kind of thing with these joints. It's not just about putting a knee replacement in or a hip replacement. It's putting it in in the perfect alignment, the perfect tension. By doing that, the patients feel better. I think they recover quicker. And long-term, these things should last a lot longer for us too. Does the surgery cost increase at all to the patient when you're using a robot? Because I know those robots aren't cheap. Yeah, the robot's not cheap, but the the robot itself does not increase the cost of surgery. We do have to get a a CT scan or a CAT scan before the surgery. It makes a three-dimensional model of the patient so that we can program the robot. That does add a little bit of a cost. But overall, uh, it's it's pretty minimal when you're considering these surgeries are you know twenty thousand, thirty thousand um, dollars. A lot of these CAT scans are being done for two and three hundred dollars, so it's a pretty minimal cost overall. Uh, particularly when you look at the longevity uh, of these implants by being put in perfectly, I think it's a pretty minimal cost. Now I know you can't always avoid surgery, but there's a lot of people searching for non-surgical options, uh, you know, prior to surgery because they're afraid of maybe losing range of motion or or going under anesthesia. What do you recommend to your patients in terms of other options or even some regenerative medicine options for them? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's a question I get asked multiple, multiple times every day. Surgery is is fraught with risks. I mean, risks of infection, risks of death, risks of loss of limb. And so you always want to take surgery very, very seriously. And I treat all my patients with surgery as a last resort. I really want to try anything I can to treat patients and particularly their pain without surgery. And we, we look at simple things like weight loss, uh, being active, you know, strengthening the muscles around a joint, 
Simple little things like that. Over the past you know, five or 10 years, there have been some new what we call biologics, new injections or medications that are coming out that are helping patients deal with the pain they have in their joints, uh, mostly from arthritis or from some rotator cuff tears that are showing very significant progress in non-operatively or treating the pain without having to undergo big surgeries. Uh, I think people have heard in the news of PRP or what we call platelet-rich plasma, uh, stem cells, uh, stuff like that. I put a lot of my patients on an anti-inflammatory diet to get rid of the inflammation. It's the inflammation that's set up by the joint that causes the pain, but it also causes more joint destruction. So we try to do a lot of different modalities, different things. I don't think there's one particular thing you can do to slow arthritis or stop the pain. It's, it's really a bunch of little things that all combine to, for a, a great outcome or a big, big uh, result. Do you find that a lot of people are seeking out things like amniotic fluid, PRP, exome, stem cells? It seems like people throw around the word stem cells kind of loosely and, and categorize all these things under stem cells when they're when they're actually very different. But do you find that that there's kind of a movement towards that? There definitely is. I used to not get asked, you know, a lot of non-operative questions. It was you know, anti-inflammatory, so Tylenol or Aleve, maybe some physical therapy. And if that didn't work, we, we went to surgery. Um, the cortisone shots were, were in there. Some people believed in them. Some people didn't. You know, they, they really don't do, they don't really affect the actual arthritis. They kind of get rid of the inflammation. They cover up the pain, but they're not curing it. And lately over the past few years with the advent of some of these technologies, People are becoming smarter and smarter. The internet and, and Google and everything else is giving people information that wasn't at their fingertips as easily. And they're becoming much more participatory in their healthcare and they're asking these questions. And you're right, I think stem cells becomes this this word that gets thrown around a lot and in kind of all encompassing and people think that these are the fountain of youth. You know, you see them used everywhere from skin and hair growth to arthritis to, you know, blood pressure. I mean, people are using these quote unquote stem cells for everything. And I think as a profession, we're, we're learning how to harvest these things, how to use them, how to treat them, how to apply them to patients, be a shots, be a pills. And it's getting better and better every day, every week. There's there's new information. There's new articles that come out. There's new technologies that come out. And it's a learning process. It's certainly not a one shot for everybody kind of a thing. It's very patient specific. It's de- there's a lot of factors that go into it, but there are more and more patients that are, are asking about them and there are more and more treatment options available to, to, to patients out there. So, But it is becoming much more common for patients to ask about these kind of treatment options. And I know PRP is relatively affordable, but when you're looking at the amniotic fluid, stem cells, exomes, they can get pretty pricey. So hopefully as this quote movement or whatever we want to call it, uh, with that comes comes more affordable options for the patient. You spoke about steroid injections, and I'm just kind of curious on that because you hear of just about everybody has had one at this point in their life. At what point does that teeter on damaging that actual tendon? Like how many of those can you actually get, receive? 
That's a great question that doesn't have a simple answer, but these cortisone injections that people get, cortisone is an anti-inflammatory. It's designed to reduce inflammation. It doesn't cure anything. These aren't cells. These aren't, they're not doing anything other than really reducing inflammation. In an arthritic joint, a knee or a hip that has arthritis, you're getting rid of all of that inflammation and the patients feel better. Over time, the arthritis is still there. The inflammation will build up and the pain will most likely come back. In other parts of the body, you know, you and I are golfers, tennis players. There are places where the cortisones can actually be curative. If you've got a sprain or a strain or a small little tendon tear, sometimes putting these cortisone shots on or around these tendons or these sprains and strains reduces the inflammation. The body's able to actually come in and heal it. So cortisone gets thrown around a lot like stem cells. Sometimes it really is truly just a painkiller to make patients feel better. But sometimes it's it's performed to actually help the body heal and it can be curative. It can help in the overall process of, of healing whatever damaged tissue there is. And so it, it gets utilized a lot and it gets kind of clumped all together. But the short answer is you really don't want to get repetitive cortisone shots because they can actually damage the tissue, particularly in joints. You know, you get more than two or three a year and you run the risk of actually speeding up the process of arthritis, of weakening the bone. Yeah, too many or too high of a concentration of cortisone around a tendon can actually cause the tendon to tear. So you've got to be very careful how much you give and how often you, you give them. So other than diet and ibuprofen, what other treatment options do you see for treating inflammation in the body? Yeah, that's a great question. We always really promote uh, movement. We know that motion of joints helps uh, eliminate the inflammation and the fluid within the joints. But there are also some new medications, uh, I'll call them treatments, that have come onto the market that are we're finding really good results with. Um, these are these things called peptides. Peptides are small little sequences of amino acids. They're the building block, so to speak, of... Uh, muscles. And what a lot of studies are finding is they have an anti-inflammatory properties to them. And some of the peptides like BPC-157, it's getting a lot of uh, recognition in the news and in the press because it actually is being shown to have some regenerative, actually some healing properties. And so some of these peptide injections, uh, whether you inject it actually into the joint or you're injecting it into a muscle or around a sprain or a strain, they're really designed to reduce the inflammation, but also hopefully help uh, the body heal what is, what, is, what is torn or is what is damaged. But perhaps the best thing about these peptides is there's really minimal side effects to them. It's not like a cortisone where you, you run the risk of, uh, of tearing a tendon or actually making the arthritis worse. There's really not a, a bad side effect profile or something really bad that can happen with these. So these are great treatments for, for us as physicians and surgeons because we can give them to our patient and the worst thing that can happen is they just don't work. And that's not something you get to say with a lot of your treatments. I When I do hip replacement, I say, well, I hope it gets rid of your pain, but it might not. You might get an infection. You might lose your leg. It's not the case with these things. They're, they're really a low-risk thing. They're not overly expensive. I think, as we talked about with stem cells, I think the price of these things will come down. But there, there are treatment modalities that are available and are, are relatively inexpensive that most people would, would be able to afford. 
Absolutely. I agree with you. Peptides are amazing with a really mild side effect profile. And it's exciting to see all the advances in medicine from stem cells to peptides to robotic surgeries, all really just pushing medicine forward. I've been in the operating room with you numerous times. You are a fantastic surgeon. I think your life story is motivational for everyone, uh, but in particular, your patients that are amputees. If if somebody wants to get a hold of you and be a patient of yours or has additional questions, how can they get a hold of you? Yeah, certainly, Amy. Um, my clinic is located in Chesterfield, uh, Missouri, just outside of St. Louis. Uh, my phone number is 314-666-0869. You can call and leave a message. You can also text. We, uh, we are trying to be a little bit more uh, up on the technology, so you can just send me a text uh, requesting an appointment time. We do have a Facebook page. Just search uh, Dr. Matthew Bradley. Our Facebook page will come up with links to some of the uh, procedures we do. Uh, you'll be able to check out the Mako robot on there. Uh, but uh, thank you for asking and I uh, appreciate it. Thank you again, Dr. Bradley, for taking time out of your day to be on the show. As always, I will attach show notes and studies to support the information talked about on today's podcast. If you could follow, rate, share the show, that would be awesome. We'll see you next time.